Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the costs of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone this week. Thank you so much for joining in and listening to us again. You know, I'm really excited for the guest that we have. He is a champion in long-term care and for home care and for seniors. And, you know, before I say anything else, Sarah, please introduce our guest for today. I am honored to introduce Dr. Amit Arya. He is a palliative care physician who works in hospital, home care, and long-term care facilities. He's currently the palliative care lead at Kensington Health in Toronto and serves as lecturer for the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto and assistant clinical professor for the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Arya holds multiple leadership roles at the national, provincial, and local level, and was awarded the 2020 Award of Excellence in Social Responsibility from the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto. In 2021, he co-founded Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, a coalition of over 1,000 physicians and researchers advocating for an overhaul of the long-term care system in Ontario. Through the COVID-19 crisis, he has been featured in the media speaking about long-term care on CBC's The National, CTV's The Social, and TVO's The Agenda. Amit, we're so thankful to have you here today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's just an absolute pleasure. So I wanted to just start by talking about a pinned tweet that you wrote almost a year ago. It was January 26, 2021, where over 200 doctors and researchers signed an open letter calling on the Ontario government to urgently address the long-term crisis. And since it's been almost a year, like what's changed and what are we facing right now? I'm happy to speak about long-term care. Uh, Long-term care, palliative care are both my passions and you know, I think there's a lot of work to do in terms of how we need to fix the system. Right now in Canada, if we look at the stats through the COVID-19 pandemic, about half of the deaths have actually occurred in our long-term care facilities across the country. Wow. So that's, uh, you know, it's actually a number which is really hard to comprehend. Or I think about as a physician who works on the front lines of the long-term care system, all of the individual stories, you know, the people that I've met, I've met their caregivers, their families, and, you know, really how they're Suffering has gone unrecognized uh, by and large, and I think at this mo- at this point in time, we need a fundamental overhaul about how we think about aging and dying in Canada. There's no time, you know, sooner than you know the present at this time because you know we're all a serious illness or an accident away from requiring long-term care services, from needing home care services, from needing palliative care services. And actually, 2021 was the year when our biggest age demographic, baby boomers, just turned 75. 
you know, more and more people are going to need access to these services. And it's so clear that there's significant gaps in how we provide these services at this time. I totally agree with what you say, because my grandmother was actually in long-term care and she passed away from COVID in the first wave. And uh, it really made me think about when my parents get to that age, is that something I want for them? And I, I honestly don't know right now. I really feel like home is the best place for them, but you know, things can change and who knows what will happen in 10, 15, 20 years time. I'm, of course, very saddened to hear about your experience and what happened to your grandmother, uh, you know, Sarah. Uh, you know, I can tell you as someone who worked, I've been working in long-term care for, for, you know, for many years now. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I sort of led my hospital's rapid response team into long-term care facilities with large-scale COVID-19 outbreaks. And, you know, even for someone who works in palliative care, where my direct job is related to helping people achieve relief of suffering, and I see people suffering a lot, the scale of suffering that I saw in long-term care facilities was something that, honestly, I'm very traumatized by, and I'll never forget. I just can't forget walking into the long-term care facilities and seeing, you know, a unit of 32 residents with one nurse, no PSW, you know, a nurse that was actually on her first day on the job not provided any orientation. I had PSWs who were asking our team for PPE because they were actually being asked to reuse the same mask for a week. Essentially, there's no way of thinking about it other than a humanitarian disaster or a humanitarian crisis. And when we hear the stories in the media about people who died not just from COVID-19, but people who died from dehydration, they died from hunger, that's actually what our team saw in these long-term care facilities. I worked in the facilities where the military uh, was involved as well. And of course, one of the root causes of our situation at this time is the fact that, you know, so many of our long-term care facilities are run by private for-profit corporations, where, of course, the incentive and the, and the whole paradigm is set up to generate profit, to extract wealth from frontline care rather than provide care itself and improve care. Yeah, that is definitely one of the most startling things that I think myself and Sarah had learned about um, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of what was happening in long-term care. I think we we had an understanding that it was owned by private uh, corporations, but then we did see the fallout of this type of ownership and hearing about the outbreaks and having the military come in and just outrageous amount of death that occurred. I think that was, you know, something that is etched into the minds of everybody. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of want to know, and maybe you can give an answer to this is, like Sarah said, it's almost been a year to the date. Has much changed? What are we facing now? Because I'm also seeing that there are outbreaks again that are starting to happen. Like, what are the next steps? What do we need to do to keep our seniors safe? What do we need to do to make sure that, you know, we're looking at home care and we're, we're making sure that we're doing all the things that we can do. What, what, what are we facing now and what's changed? To be very frank with both of you, and I think it's very sad, um, I, I, I don't think that a lot has changed. And definitely I can say that enough has not changed uh, at this time to make sure we're providing high quality, equitable care. With so many people that died, so many health workers that got sick and you know, were no longer able to work, we would have expected a lot more, actually, you know, you know, given the situation. And I think, uh, by and large, uh, unfortunately, there's a large degree of awareness in the public, which I can say did not exist uh, before COVID-19. Uh, so many people are aware of this issue. Many people are concerned about this issue. But there's also some despair 
where um, public opinion polls actually show that the majority of the public do not trust politicians to make these changes and have lost faith in governments, whether we're talking about provincial government, federal government, and I'm not pointing fingers at just necessarily our provincial government, but I'm just talking about across the board, across Canada, people have lost faith that you know their, their governments are going to look after them and their governments are going to fix the system. I wanted to point out one some you know some you know a very important point that Sarah brought up which was about mentioning home care and that's actually I feel the root cause of our problem is that here in Canada we of course talk about universal health care but we have one of the least universal health care systems uh, when we compare ourselves to other OECD countries we don't include pharmacare for example we don't include long-term care and we don't include home care and secondly when we compare ourselves to sort of countries that many people think are the gold standard for el gold standard for elder care like Denmark Denmark for example spends about twice what we do per capita on elder care and they spend a lot more about two-thirds or about 60% sorry uh, on home care and the remainder on long-term care facilities they've actually put a moratorium they've actually banned the you know the building of new long-term care facilities in spite of the fact that their population is aging like ours but here in Canada once again, we're spending way less than what we need to. So, of course, we're going to see the result of an underfunded sort of system, you know, sort of employing austerity measures on people who need the care. And secondly, we're spending a lot more on warehousing people and taking them away from their homes, from their families, separating them away from society in order to provide care in these long-term care facilities where they don't want to go. They don't want to, I mean, people don't want to be in these facilities. And I can That's tell so you true. that... Yeah, I mean, that's what the, you know, the polls show that about 90% of seniors in Ontario or close to 90% want to avoid long term care uh, for as long as possible. And in my career, where I have these conversations day in and day out with patients and families about next steps after hospitalization or what to do after when things are going wrong at home, I can tell you I've I, I can barely think of anyone who wanted to end up in a long term care facility. So yeah, like when I think about home care and just some of the, the data and stats that you kind of brought forward to us, I, I mean, I had a family member who was in long-term care and and really the reason why we ended up putting our loved one there was because we just didn't, the access for, you know, getting home care and having someone coming in and, and checking her as frequently as we needed, it just wasn't there. So she ended up falling a couple times at home. And that was kind of, I think, the 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 point where we're like, she can't stay independently. We didn't want to put her there. She definitely did not want to go there. But we felt that we had no other choice. So, I mean, I think this is where we need to look to, you know, these other countries where they're putting their money where their mouth is. And they they I think it's also just the the value that they place on the lives of senior citizens. We we do have a very ageist society and very able right. society. I see that a lot in conversation, really with the pandemic, just, oh, God, some of the stuff I've seen people say online, it's been really horrible. And I think that, you know, we just have to have a, we, we have to move the needle somehow. And, you know, we have to use those data points that you found and that you talked about specifically about how we can re-envision home care, especially that knowing that these residents want to stay with their family members. 
I think we know the solutions, like so many of our crises and problems that we talk about, whether we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, we talk about you know, the climate emergency that we're currently in, whether we talk about our healthcare system that is falling apart. What's sad is that we actually do know the solutions and we just simply need the political will at this time. We almost need a citizen's movement where we need to empower everyone. We need to use the power of our votes and we need to use the power of all of our voices collectively to understand, you know, especially when we're talking about palliative care, we're talking about long-term care, or any, any of these other issues that we mentioned, really they're not partisan issues. They're issues that affect everyone to some degree, although the degree that we're affected might be quite different. And definitely I'd be happy to have a conversation about inequity in the long-term care system and the home care system. That's definitely something very important. But Amy, you said it right that, you know, a, a lot of what we speak about when we speak about long-term care and home care is it's it's you know, a disability justice issue at heart. And we've seen through the pandemic and even before how poorly we treat people who live with disabilities. We know that ableism is a public health crisis and there's significant gaps in terms of home care that people with disabilities receive. Uh, I, know of the, uh, I know of many circumstances where I've looked after people who live with disabilities in long-term care. It's very sad to say they had no future they were completely despondent. They, of course, did not want to be institutionalized or warehoused, but this was the only option that the system provided them. And in fact, there are many people who live in long-term care, even now, where with proper home care supports, they do not have to live in an actual facility. And of course, with properly funded home care, which means proper staffing, proper resources, as well as compensation for caregivers, should be another sort of building block of when we talk about let's build back better and what to think about after the pandemic should be recognition and composition for caregivers. If we do that, there's so many people, once again, who can live in their own homes. And that definitely has to be something we think about as we move ahead. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Emmett. And I think that you touched on a really important point is that most people want to be at home. And I think this includes being at home for their the end of their life too for palliative care. So I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about why you chose that specialty. Why did you decide as a physician to work in palliative care? And I think it's a bit of a story because I didn't have like really straightforward route to kind of working full-time in palliative care. Uh, I, I would actually say it was just by chance that palliative care chose me. So I, I was working as a family doctor. So I worked as a family doctor for 10 years in Brampton, which is a mid to low socioeconomic status community with so many people who are recent immigrants to Canada, uh, people who are refugees, uh, essential workers. Uh, and we've definitely heard the, you know, the story of essential workers through this pandemic and uh, how they've been neglected. So that was essentially my patient population. I had so many people who were actually temp agency workers, uh, they couldn't speak a word of English, and they were really exploited by the system. I remember, you know, there were very few physicians at that time in Brampton who actually did home visits, but I really enjoyed doing home visits for people with disabilities and many frail seniors who simply couldn't walk to my office or had no means of transportation to my office. And one day, you know, I worked in a family health team. One day I was standing next to, a, you know, a colleague of mine who was a physician assistant whose previous role uh, before joining our family health team was working in oncology and palliative care. And there was a referral from home and community care for, you know, you know, a gentleman with palliative care needs. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you know, you'd be really great at this. You have like the right personality and you do so well. 
And there was just something so different about, you know, caring for people with palliative care needs. Uh, very soon, I had like a big roster of home palliative care patients. And it was shortly after that, that actually I, I started working in long-term care as well, where I would say one of the core skill sets of working in long-term care is definitely palliative care. So, I mean, I took it upon myself to do a lot of CME at that point in time to learn more and more about palliative care. I eventually got hospital privileges, and I was very lucky to receive a lot of mentorship and guidance when I started working in the hospital. And um, shortly after, uh, or a couple years after all that happened, I did a traineeship in palliative care. Uh, so this whole retraining year sort of now uh, can say that I'm certified to work as a palliative care specialist. Wow, that's such an amazing story. And I think that's, sometimes that's how it has to go, right? Like, you know, you think you're going to go down a certain path, and actually the path chooses you. That's that's kind of amazing. One of the things that even even within myself, and maybe it's also cultural too, there's a lot of stigma around palliative care and what palliative care means. And, you know, we have other people that listen that aren't healthcare professionals. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what palliative care actually is, what it actually isn't, and maybe just describe to our listeners, what does a holistic palliative care model actually look like? To be honest with you, Amy, I mean, this is something that, I mean, when I'm doing consults, for example, in long-term care or in, in our clinics or, um, you know, in the hospital, this is something we often start our conversation with because there's so many misconceptions about what palliative care is. There's a lot of fear surrounding palliative care. So, I mean, one way to explain what palliative care is, is that it's a medical specialty that focuses on relief of suffering on managing symptoms like pain, nausea, anxiety, and improves quality of life. Improves quality of life until the day that someone dies. And really, palliative care sort of is holistic care. So it's not just focused on physical symptoms, but it focuses on psychological symptoms, spiritual symptoms, social causes of suffering as well. And it's, it's a type of care which can be and should be provided at all stages of a progressive illness in order to enhance the process of aging and once again to improve quality of life through the course of an illness. So that's kind of a description of, or maybe a comprehensive description about what palliative care professionals do. And a lot of the time, I mean, you ask very, very, you know, very, you know, like a great question, Amy, about, you know, well, what are the misconceptions? And we often define, sadly, we often define palliative care by what it is not. So the most, uh, uh, probably the number one misconception that we hear is that palliative care is just end of life care. And that's actually not the case. So we know that early approaches to palliative care and early integration of palliative care is actually better in terms of improving quality of life. And in many circumstances, especially for those people who are living with metastatic cancer, can actually prolong survival as well, right? So palliative care is not about dying. It's about living well. And it's not just about the very end of life. It's not just about care during the last hours or days, right? So mm -hmm. I've cared for many, many patients who have lived for years actually under my care. I've cared for many patients who actually survived and got better because they had a curable oh, illness. Wow. But once wow. again, yeah, they, they needed palliative care because they were suffering, right? So they had right. a curable cancer, but they had severe pain. They had anxiety. They had financial stressors. Their family needed support. They needed home care. They needed conversations to understand what quality of life meant to them. 
um, what type of you know decisions were best to them, you know you know were, were best for them based on the stage of their illness, based on their prognosis, and that's really what palliative care specializes in. One way we can think about it, and we often talk about this when we're working with our oncologist colleagues, although those are not the only specialists that we work with, of course, is that we say the oncologists um, treat the cancer, and we treat the person. I I really like the way that you describe that. Cause even for example, like I have an aunt who's considered palliative at this point in time and there's so much fear and anxiety. And I feel like, you know, within our own family, she, she still is not, maybe, maybe she needs to see a different practitioner, but there's still so much anxiety around this whole issue of palliative care. And I think she's actually been palliative for the last two years, but it, it still is, you know, a process for our own, it's, it's not even just the patient that's palliative. It's like the whole family. It's, it's about family care too. And how do you, how do you incorporate the family into understanding what's, what's happening? And I mean, I think that I like the whole idea that it's, it's about, you know, relieving suffering and it's, it's really about how do we make life better? And I think that, you know, I, I have, I feel that I have something to take back to her. So I, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you gave that explanation. Yeah, and I like how you said that really the time the timing varies, right? Because a lot of people might think palliative care means the last hours, the last days of your life. But as you mentioned, it could be months or even years where someone is under palliative care. And it just because they're not undergoing active treatment like chemotherapy doesn't mean that they wouldn't be able to benefit from all of the other interventions that can alleviate their suffering and just give them a better quality of life. And on the Greater Nurse Podcast, we would be amiss if we didn't go there and talk about the racial and ethnic disparities. And I'm sure in your practice, you have seen, you know, these types of disparities in palliative care. What are some of the effects or how, how does this affect different populations? I mean, we know right here in Canada where we think of healthcare as a human right. Once again, as I mentioned, we were talking about our so-called universal healthcare system. There are so many gaps. And of course, through the pandemic, those, you know, those gaps have become even wider and have, you know, become frankly very, very dangerous. But for many communities, they were dangerous already. And in, in Canada, unfortunately, we don't collect race-based data. So often what we see in the research is, you know, the surrogate of country of birth. And, I mean, there's well-established data that shows that, I mean, if you're someone who's um, a recent immigrant to Canada, you're much less likely to receive palliative care. And you're most likely to receive aggressive care at the end of life, which means hospitalization, admission to the ICU, tracheostomy, dialysis, feeding tube. All these things are sort of classified as, as, as aggressive care. Um, if you're a refugee, then your chances of actually receiving uh, aggressive care is even way higher. Right than someone who's a recent immigrant and maybe has come to Canada through you know through other means. So that really shows us that there's such significant gaps in terms of how we deliver palliative care. And I'll I'll tell you that you know honestly by and large access to palliative care is a luxury. Actually, even in this day and age here in Canada, if we kind of estimate uh, about one percent of Canadians die each year, 
And if we assume that everyone, I mean, most of most people who die, unless they die suddenly, which is a minority of people, actually, most people are alive for some time with some type of life-limiting diagnosis or a life-threatening condition before they die. What that means is about 370,000 Canadians uh, would benefit from palliative care each year. And this is, of course, before the pandemic. Uh, you know, we can definitely say that the need for palliative care and the need for relief of suffering has increased significantly through the pandemic because more people are suffering. And I'll say it again, because I want to make this clear, palliative care would be appropriate for so many people who are suffering, whether they're meant to survive their acute illness or not, because it's focused on relief of suffering in a life-threatening condition. So, I mean, in that circumstance, we know that the vast majority of Canadians actually only receive palliative care in their last month of life, right? In spite of the fact that there's, as I mentioned, it's we, we are what we dream of and what we want is an early integrated approach, which means that palliative care should be thought of early on because the suffering that people experience does not just start at the very end of life. Suffering actually often starts from diagnosis uh, with, a, with any type of life-threatening condition or any type of terminal illness. So therefore, palliative care should be integrated early on. It does not mean that life-prolonging treatments like chemotherapy or dialysis have to stop. It just means that it would be integrated and provided concurrently. But as I said, resources are so slim at this point in time, and there's so much in terms of understaffing and under-resources that actually we know that very few people, I mean, I can tell you 85% of uh, Canadians actually prefer to receive palliative care at home, but yet only 15% are able to do so. Did you say 15 or 50? 15. One five. Oh, 15. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, when I think about, you know, um, the racial and ethnic disparities, I immediately think about like the social determinants of health. So, you know, how right. does having housing affect someone who might be end of life or needing palliative care? And and I think those are the pages that you might mean also that might be, you know, entering the system when, when they need aggressive treatment, because maybe they've waited for a long time, or I shouldn't say that they waited, they had a lack of access to receiving that care. Or how does, you know, income affect someone who who otherwise might need something in relation to their care or how does, you know, food insecurity, like I think there's so many different things that we can factor in. It's just kind of like, well, what do we need to do to change that? How do we make it or flip those statistics that you said about palliative care that, you know, many of these racialized individuals don't have access. Like, I mean, thank God we're not in the States. I think that would be like, I think the racial disparities would be, I don't even think eye opening. I think it would be massively crushing to see what it looks like from that model but again here in Canada like what do we need to do to make the change like I understand we're talking about that we know that there are problems what are some concrete things that we can tell to look and fix some of these disparities that we do see in palliative care and I think some of the things that that we should be thinking about as we you know, are are hopefully working towards building a more equitable system, a more anti-racist system, would be, of course, better care early on in life. To be honest, there's this phenomenon where we talk about, I mean, we talk about this in palliative care, too little care early on in life and too much care at the end. So basically what happens is, is that a lot of people who are, you know, facing discrimination uh, in the system, who have been marginalized by the system, whose voices have been made invisible, don't have access, equitable access to healthcare uh, when they're well. 
right? And they don't have equitable access to housing, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Amy, social determinants of health, they don't have access to food, you know, they don't have access to just, you know, home care. Uh, You know, I can tell you that I I meet people who are paying $100,000 per year to provide 24 hour caregiver support for their for their loved ones. And obviously, that's right away tells you that this is a luxury. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's not the average person, right? That's not the average person. So someone who's poor, someone who's a refugee, someone who's racialized, um, obviously is completely in a different category. Has been facing discrimination. Has been facing a you know a system that has rendered them invisible. And then suddenly, when they're in that sort of scenario where they either themselves or their you know their loved one needs acute care and needs an escalation of care perhaps a physician, and we know physicians are obviously a big part of the paternalism in the system and the oppression, physician will show up and say, well, no, you actually don't, you know, you don't need, like, you don't need this care, right? This care is not appropriate. You don't need critical care at this time. Well, you should think about palliative care, right? So, I mean, you can imagine how that would sound to someone and people would just say no, right? And then what we see often is we see that, you know, the healthcare workers are often blaming the patient or the family for, you know, feeling that way. And I I can tell you, for someone who worked in Brampton for so long, uh, very sadly, that's something that I had to battle against and fight against. And simple things uh, that should be ingrained in the system to provide safe care, such as access to an um, you know access to an interpreter or i would even say mandatory use of an interpreter uh, are not being done right so there's so many circumstances where people are not aware of what their options are they're not aware of their illness they're not being told and um, therefore they're suffering and of course there's other issues at play here as i spoke about you know mistrust in the system as well Mm -hmm. but what can we do as a healthcare system to build that trust Right? That's really what we have to do. We have to think about how we can meet people where they're at and provide them the proper care and sort of uh, focus on fixing a lot of the power about ba- I mean, a lot of the power imbalances that exist in our society and in our healthcare system at large. Oh, absolutely. Like I think one of the things I keep saying, and I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm saying and repeating this over and over. I, I talk a lot about representation matters, right? So, for example, right. you know. It's great that we have some racialized physicians, but for example, when I look at, you know, black applicants or or black physicians, there is not as many black physicians as I would like to see. You know, I mean, I think that I don't know why that might be the case. I think that, you know, it would be great to have when we're talking about racialized medicine too, that we have people that look like the people who are her boots on the ground. And for example, one of the things I looked at today was I, I, I remember hearing that Ryerson was talking about having a, a medical school. And then you just mentioned that she also used to work in Brampton and they're thinking about having this medical school in Brampton. What a concept would it be if they're like, you know what, let's make this match the population that we're planning on serving or or that we have a good applicant pool that will fit the app, the people that they're going to be serving. And I think that that's such a huge part in terms of building that trust where we do see people who, you know, look like us providing that care as well. 
think that it's really just about, like you said, Amy, that representation and having the community more involved. Because right. if the community was involved, they understood that they're putting in resources to this medical school that is ultimately going to benefit everyone in the end. It would make sense. I think that is a really good approach. And I wish that we could see more of that. But hopefully this will get off the ground and inspire other schools, other communities to do the same. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff should really be integrated into you know, education, for example, like, you know, early medical education, early nursing education, where we actually, I think, if I think back even to my nursing training, I, I our community placement was such garbage. <laughs> I'm try, I was trying to put it nicely, but it was like, not great. And I mean, it would have been really great if I had the opportunity to, you know, work with people like Kathy Crow, get out on the the streets, so to say, and like actually see what those social determinants mean and how does it actually impact care, not just from a textbook, but from, you know, boots on the ground. And I think that, you know, as medical learners and nurses and everyone that's kind of coming up through the healthcare system, I think we have a real opportunity to play to be a part of that community health model. And I really hope that, you know, those universities and colleges that are listening out there, that we start taking this seriously, especially when it comes to, you know, racialized and ethnic peoples. And then, like you said, Ahmed, we need to make sure that we are collecting race-based data. That's like a whole other piece. I actually did like a huge presentation where that was a one of the sole focuses about why it's important to collect that data. So hopefully we can start making some changes because, you know, again, I, I think it's healthcare for all, not healthcare just for some. And Amy, as you were talking, I just realized that we never had any opportunities for palliative care rotations in nursing school, at least I didn't. And now that everybody's talking about how hard it is to find placements in hospitals, I think the focus needs to be on other ways for nurses to gain that experience. And it doesn't all have to be in the hospital system. I agree. Palliative care would be a great way to develop a lot of those hands-on skills that we're talking about. And just going back to what you said earlier, Amit, you said that palliative care chose you. And so I'm just wondering, like, can you share with us some of the things palliative care has taught you as a physician, as an individual? What stands out in your mind? Well, I think uh, it's it's hard to put that into words because palliative care is really my passion. And it's something which very much touches me on, a, on, a, on an everyday basis. There's just so many uh, amazing moments with patients and families that I'm so blessed to be a part of. So many moments with an amazing team, an interdisciplinary team, whether it's in hospital, whether it's in home care and long-term care, that uh, in spite of all the problems we talked about, we still sort of work well and we try to do our best uh, in, in the system. I think one thing that palliative care really taught me and the way it sort of changed me is in healthcare, we're often taught our job is just to prolong life and to save life. But I, I think that when we think about palliative care, we think we don't just think about life, but we think about quality of life and what quality of life means to someone. We really learn about the power of connection, where we know a lot of healthcare, unfortunately, it, it runs kind of by default and it works in this almost algorithmic type of system where, okay, you come in with a heart attack, this is the treatment you get. You come in with a fracture, this is the treatment you get. And the care is not always individualized to respect, you know, the wishes and the values and expectations of the person. That's uh, definitely something that palliative care has taught me about, is really about exploring that connection and developing that connection and developing that rapport. And when we think about healthcare, it should be like this in all of healthcare. I'm stereotyping. I wouldn't say it's always like that, but, you know, care is a relationship. 
right? Healthcare is right. all about relationships. And that's really something that is so central to palliative care. If I had to think about two other things, which I think uh, has, you know, I've really, really been highlighted for me working in palliative care. Um, it's firstly, it's, I mean, I guess one point is about disability rights, because palliative care is, of course, almost always for people who are living with a disability you know as you get older you're more likely to you know live with a disability and I really feel that a lot of the a lot of the underfunding and the under-resourcing and the understaffing is is once again it's it's ableism to be honest when we look at our long-term care system and what's happening uh, you know the core root of the problem is actually beyond age because people who are 80 and 90 and are living well and can have and are wealthy and can afford to live well are not in long-term care to be very right. frank with you it's it's ableism is actually at the root of our of our crisis in home care and in long-term care and in palliative care so that's one thing and then the last thing I'll mention is about um, it's about labor rights and uh, working in long-term care facilities working in home care I have most definitely seen you know how poor the working conditions are for my nursing colleagues for my PSW colleagues as well and so many other members of the team and that undoubtedly has an impact on on the care we provide so it's important to note that most of the health workers in long-term care and home care where a lot of palliative care happens are women many of them are racialized women uh, we don't have equal pay for equal work. So, you know, and it kind of goes to what you were saying, where it would be great if there was a rotation in home care. And I, I would love to see that because I think then nursing students and students of all disciplines, of all healthcare disciplines would recognize uh, actually what needs to change in, in, yeah. in the system. They would know that early on and hopefully they would become advocates as well. I've talked to many nurses over the years who loved palliative home care. They were so good at it, but they left because they told mm -hmm. me they actually couldn't afford to actually pay the rent. Uh, wow. They were failing to pay their grocery bills because they were paid significantly less than long-term care even. They were paid like $5 less right. than long-term care and way less than acute care, right? So we yeah. can't think yes. of home care uh, as an afterthought. We can't think of long-term care as an afterthought. We have to make sure that we respect labor rights and we give people a livable wage. We make sure we provide them benefits like paid sick days. Uh, we make sure that we provide them the proper training and the proper skills that they need uh, in order to thrive at their jobs as well. And of course, uh, we need enough staff to make sure that people are not stretched. They're not working thin. I mean, time and time again, I've spoken to nurses, for example, who are I've, you know, a typical nurse in palliative home care, maybe visiting 10 or 15 homes in a day. I've talked, to, I think the payment model varies depending on the agency, but as I mentioned, paid much less than acute care and often paid per visit rather than for time. Hmm. So you might be in wow. one home and you might just have to give, I don't know, an injection of a blood thinner and you're in and out in five, 10 minutes. But in another home, you may have to spend time with the family, uh, provide emotional counseling, connect equipment wait for a call back from the physician on call in the hospital, the palliative care physician, and maybe even come back later on in the day to check up and make sure everything is okay, but you're actually not compensated at all, right? For almost all wow. of that care. And therefore, as I said, I've talked to many nurses who are getting paid less than minimum wage, <laughs> honestly. So how can we expect the system to even survive? And how is this respectful to our nursing and PSW colleagues who actually provide the vast majority of the care in the community.
You know what? This has been an eye-opening conversation, and I'm I'm really thankful that you came on to lend that perspective to to even give myself and Sarah a different perspective. Because I could tell you, I don't know why this was, but even when we were nurses, and this was like back ten years ago when we were in school, they never made long-term care or home care sexy. You know what I mean? They they said they talked to us about these placements, but everybody wanted to work in an acute care, and even like you sold me, like I'm kind of like, oh, this, <laughs> That's is, good, this is maybe where I should be. Like maybe I'm not in the right place. But honestly, like I think that this is where education really needs to take a different look at how we talk about long-term care, how we talk about home care. And then also, you know, like Sarah said, these placements should be available. We should have people working in these areas. And then the last piece that you pulled in, which I think is important, pay people for the work that they're doing. I don't understand why we have these models where, you know, if you work in home care, it's so much less. You work in acute care, you get paid much more. You know what? Pay people what they're worth. And the thing is, I think people who work in long-term care and home care, they they really are truly, truly amazing people. That is really some hard work. And I think that, you know, uh, it, we're remiss to hear these stories. And I'm so thankful that you came on to the Greeners podcast today to tell us a little bit more about palliative care and long-term care and home care. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really a really a big admirer of both of you. So <laughs> I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was great.